From the Metropolitan Campus of Fairleigh Dickinson University, this is WFDU-FM and HD1 Teaneck, the New York metro area's home of retro radio oldies and eclectic weekends, streaming worldwide at WFDU.FM. And welcome back to Traditions. I'm Ron Olesko, and uh, good to be with you on this Sunday afternoon, as it is every Sunday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time here on WFDU and also folkmusicnotebook.com. You know, I've been doing this radio show since 1980, and uh, every year I, I am amazed by the quality and the, the diversity of music that we are receiving. Uh, folk music is a living tradition at its heart, and an album came across uh, my path a few weeks ago from an artist who has also been on the scene for, uh, for a number of years, and I... I was blown away by the album, and I realized I have never had this opportunity to sit down with this artist on this program <laughs> after all these years. I'm, shame on me. Uh, Deirdre McCullough has just released an, uh, an album that I think is destined to be a classic. It's called Endless Grace, and we're going to be sharing a few cuts from it. And right now, through the magic of uh, electronics, we have her with us today. Deirdre hello, McCullough. Hello, Ron. It's good to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you here with us. Uh, you know, I, I've not done this show, but our paths have uh, uh, crossed a number of times. Right, um, right. Over the years, and I even, for years, have had and still have uh, a pull quote from you reviewing um, a Nerfer showcase I did many shall we say decades ago possibly um, when we were both kids right yeah yeah we were both toddlers when we were doing this so it, it, it's good to be here on traditions thank you oh uh, thank you for being here and uh and thank you for creating this album and and you know it's this album has been a few years since you've last released one i think your previous album came out what 2013 was it no go back another 10 years it's actually 2003 2003 was the last time i do an album and and it it is funny i was joking with um the one of the producers for this album julie wolf um who's saying that we you know we need to go back into the studio again and i said well i definitely want to do that but at the kind of speed i've been putting out albums i'm not due for another 30 years <laughs> i think if i keep on she's like no 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 we need to do a, a, an album sooner than that but um yeah especially since uh as an i'm an independent artist even when i was with olivia records um the women's record company uh that was out in in California for many many years. Now it's become a very successful travel company, um, but it was it was really a pioneer in its days. Even when I was with Olivia, my albums I had the, I was the first artist to do the relationship with them where they leased the masters from me. So I did all the production and paid for all the production and the studio time and the producers and stuff to get the album to master. And they leased from me uh, the right to put it out on Olivia Records. But that meant that every time I wanted to do an album, um, I had to find the funds mm. to do it. I was doing what is now known as, as crowdsourcing or crowdfunding before we had a word for it. It was, <laughs> it was back in 1983, 84. And I had a mailing list of about 700 people. And I sent out a letter um, that, that said, basically, I would like to make an album. Can you help? And people did. And people came forward. Now, those, those early albums, that first album, a lot of people you know, sent what they could. 
And I used, I did a few loans with people that I wrote out loan agreements. And I also used a little bit of a credit card uh, to get Don't Doubt It done. That was the first album on Olivia. Um, and it was always important to me that, you know, I work it out business-wise so that anybody that had a loan was, was paid back. And that's how I did my albums for all the time that I was with Olivia. I would send out a letter to people that uh, the mailing list grew, but it was still the same message. I would like to make another album. Can you help? And my wonderful, wonderful fans came through with direct don donations and loans in some instances that were always paid back. And I was able to keep going. So when Olivia decided to sail ship to um, other more profitable and shores, and they're doing wonderful work with Olivia Travel, um, I had to take on not only the costs of getting it to master, but then the costs of manufacturing, um, which was a bigger endeavor. So it took, it takes time between the albums to sure. um, not wear out your welcome. Uh, I I'm also have not been um, a very prolific writer. So sometimes it was because, you know, I didn't even feel I have had the material. And, and that's what's a little bit different about Endless Grace now in that, in the pandemic, having a copious amount of free time on my hand, um, I worked a lot on writing. And when I decided to do uh, another album, and you know, we we talked a little bit beforehand before we started recording, it was because a fan sent me um, a phone message saying I need another album from you. And when I called her, because um, I was curious as to why. Um, you know, I decided, okay, um, there can be an album without me actually being out there touring. So I made a commitment um, a few months later after that conversation to do another album. I announced the fundraising for it uh, in uh, March of 2021. Um, uh, Olivia, uh, in support of all of the musicians that were still very important to them was were doing online concerts. Olivia at home, they call these streaming events. And so this was my first Olivia at home uh, concert in March of 2021. And I announced that um, I had set up a GoFundMe site and I wanted to do another album. But inside in my head, I only had about half the album mm -hmm. of worth of songs. So uh, it was a leap of faith that um, even though not being a prolific writer, I had been working a lot on writing during the pandemic and I was gonna make this happen and, yeah. and it did. I, I really buckled down, woodshedded as it were, and, um, and, and found a way to, to make the songs happen. So on so many levels in terms of the songs weren't there, it was a leap of faith that they would be. Um, the funding, was not there and my fundraising raising letter on GoFundMe, you know, acknowledged, um, yeah, I'm fundraising in a pandemic. That's, we're in really <laughs> difficult times. So I wasn't sure, um, you know, if the funding would come through because we were all strapped and shocked. Yeah. And that's why I, I never had a time limit on it. Like, I'm not gonna do the album I, I didn't announce I'm going to do the album in June or whatever, and this was March. Um, I said I would do the album 
when I could do the album, however long it takes and, and made that commitment. So that was another leap of faith and wonderfully, um, people came through. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really, um, humbling and gratifying to me that my music moves people and resonates with people in a way that they are willing to help me keep it happening. That, that's it's got to be so rewarding to, 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 to get that from your, your audience. Right. Uh, right. And it's a responsibility, too, because, you know, it's yeah. different when a, when a corporation is handing an artist money to go into a studio to make a profit for them. Right, right. Now you've got all these artists, uh, or audience, they're really looking for you. So you put together this album and, you know, you mentioned you before that it wasn't quite finished, but you, I think you were also inspired by the times we were going through right. and the pandemic. Yeah. And there's a couple of tunes on here um, that deal with that directly. In fact, I'd like to play one right now. And this is actually the first cut on the album. It's called When the Ground Shifts. You know, it, it's interesting. When I de describe this song, I, I say that it, it's really evocative of the, the hellscape that we were leaving, living through. And I know myself and a lot of people just were stunned, were mm -hmm. shell-shocked. Um, I live near the airport here in Atlanta, and one of the images that still haunts me was um, I drove up by this road, and I don't know what I was doing. I was probably running some errand I was not supposed to be out of the house for since we were under quarantine. But I drove by the back part of the airport and up on this hill that was there was just the tail fin of plane after plane after plane, just grounded. And, and to me, that was such an image of how the world had been stood still. We did not choose to stand still. We had been stood still. And, um, mixed emotions of both um, shock and despair, um, a lot of depression I know myself and, and people went through. So that's um, what I try to bring out in the song, When the Ground Shifts. When uh, Diane um, heard that, that I was sequencing the album and I was going to start with that, she was kind of like, um, that's an interesting song to start with you know any reasoning behind that and I said um because everything we do going forward is in the shadow of the pandemic so that's why the song should be first because our lives from that point on is still looking back and always aware that that this thing happened The blink of an eye Clear out of left field With the turn of the head It didn't even seem real There was no warning There was no sign Everything shatters In a moment of time when the ground shifts away from you 
Shifts. That is a song that leads off the brand new album from Deirdre McCullough. Uh, the album is called Endless Grace, and Deirdre is with us today. Um, yeah, as you were saying before, you know, everything going forward. Uh, I, I guess we're we've probably learned some lessons from what we've gone through. You've learned a lot. Yes. Yeah. 
but it, it wasn't just the pandemic. I mean, obviously, so many other things were happening in the world while this was going on. Oh, goodness. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think that the song speaks to, to a lot of that, too. I mean, you've always been a, a, a socially relevant songwriter. Um, I mean, you kind of you grew up in New York City, right? During the, the folk revival and Phil Oaks and all those folks. So is that, I, guess I, I was there. Well, you know, that definitely that there's really two folk revivals or folk scares, as Des David Van Rock uh, used to call it. Um, and the first one, which was the the Joan Baez and the Phil Oaks age was when I was coming into being aware of music. So there was it was really my high school days, mm-hmm. um, my my introduction to Joan Baez, the whole anti-war movement and the, the civil rights movement all coming together. Um, so that was, you know, that whole folk revival then from the early, 60, uh, early 60s to mid-60s was when it was really my formative musical years and and mm-hmm. formed my my listening um and then i kind of circled back um in i guess the 80s when kind of that second folk wave right. uh was happening that that i i was definitely part of i wasn't a kid in high school going to concerts and stuff like that uh but it, it's that second age that that gave us um you know sean colvin and lucy kaplansky um frank christian just a, a cliff everhart um, all of that, 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 yeah, that, that whole village scene that was the time that I was in New York actively trying to make it as, as you say, but part of that scene, um, I hung out and worked. I actually did sound at Folk City on, on the weekends. Um, you know, I worked at a company called Canal Jeans during the day, struggling artists the rest of the time. And on, on Friday and Saturday nights, I was the sound person for the shows that were happening at Folk City and times in between just spent a lot of time dusting the bar stool in, <laughs> in Folk City and, and just soaking up what was um, going on. So, yeah. Wow, I probably saw you there and didn't even realize you yeah, were yeah. at the time. Wow. Yeah, most likely, most likely. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, but those times uh, and your music, and in fact, there's something that you, you kind of mentioned in your um, one sheet that the, was sent out to the press with the um, with the album, um, that your music has been, uh, I'll read this here. Uh, Deirdre Bacala has been in the forefront of a growing cadre of black American musicians, imploding preconceptions of what acoustic black music could or should sound like. And I tell you, I mean, I'm being doing radio for so many years, uh, People tend to get labeled and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, black music. Oh, it must be a blues singer right, or, exactly. or women's exactly. music. Oh, that's not really folk, but uh, okay, yeah, we, we, right, we tolerate right, that. Right. That, that, that's that been an aspect of my career uh, from the very beginning and predating uh, my independent record days. Uh, my first, very first album came out actually in 1973 on Roulette Records. I was a sophomore, yeah, I think, in, in college. And uh, Roulette Records, uh, for you youngins out there, um, was a, uh, uh, I, I, I call it a minor major label. Um, mm-hmm. For us old fogies, it was the home of Tommy James and the Shondells. <laughs> you know, Crimson and Clover. <laughs> um, so I had this album on Roulette Records. And what happened with, with that album, 
is that um, the radio pro programmers that were approached with the album, the white radio programmers would look at my blackface on on the cover and just go, oh, we don't play R&B. Hmm. We don't play, um, uh, you know, we don't play that music. And, okay. And the black radio programmers would be all excited, you know, oh, another sister. But they put it on and it was like, um, she she doesn't she she doesn't sound black. She sounds white. <laughs> um, and so it got you know virtual. No one know where to, where to place it. Although I will say that one of the um, key moments in 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 my career was um, I was a student at Vassar College, and there was a um, a record store across the street from the camp. Not a record store, a music store, instrument store across the street from the campus and I needed some guitar strings. So my girlfriend and I went to buy these strings and I walked into the store and, and they had, you know, music on and it sounded really fam familiar. And I realized it was me <laughs> that wow. WNEW, which was the um, progressive radio station, you know, the station in New York at the time sure. for, for progressive, I was getting airplay on WNEW. And I dropped to the floor of the music store and started flailing my arms and legs on the radio, on the floor going, I'm on the radio, I'm on the radio. <laughs> so whatever DJ it was on WNEW, you know, for that afternoon, thank you so much, <laughs> you know, because I'm still telling that story to the day. But for the most part, programmers have not known what to do with me because you're absolutely right. Some people look at me, say she's black. Do you do any blues? No, I'm I'm really don't do any blues, um, and so the the expectation there still pigeonholes, yeah, um, many many black acoustic musicians that if you're if you're acoustic if you're black you should be doing these days you know rap or or R and B whatever or if you're acoustic and black um, you should be singing what Odetta sang or you should be doing blues. And there are a lot of us out there that, um, as one of the lines that I, I came up with um, <laughs> uh, to use for the promotion that are changing how people think about how black folk do folk. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a really a wide range how, uh, of how African American performers express the acoustic genre. And though my music, um, as you say, has always had a lot of political relevance, uh, the majority of it um, deals with affairs of, of the heart and just the world around us. And so I don't have a whole lot of um, music that I tend to, to describe as manifesto. Right. Um, work that that music is important. Someone who's really good at it and that I admire a whole lot is uh, Chris Matthews. You know, she is absolutely awesome. What Reggie does, Reggie Harris is absolutely awesome. But that type of um, manifesto, right, uh, is is just not where I come from um, in supporting the same goals. Essentially, I just come at it from a different direction. 
And uh, different directions, right? I mean, you know, internalizing and dealing with the, uh, the conditions that we all go through each day. Mm-hmm. I think that is important. And that, mm-hmm. you know, I think when I listen to your music, um, it helps me think about things that I go through in my daily life. Right. Uh, it doesn't have to be, okay, we're going to go down and, uh, you know, picket or anything and like that. Right, uh, right. right. Um, but it's, what also I love about your music is the fact that it is so diverse and you have so many, especially on this album, so many different styles of music <laughs> that are influencing you. Um, I'd like to play another song now, which has kind of a little celtic country feel to it yes it uh, does it's called shoulder to the wheel give us a little background on this one um you know i think a lot about the people that uh get up every day and do what needs to be done there's a poem by marge percy up on my office wall and it's been up there for decades called to be is to be of use and in and it talks about just people who see what has to be done and just continue making things happen. And and, then I've always um, admired that. And it's been my approach to my own work, no matter what I'm doing, um, to to do it with resolve and integrity and to to keep going forward. This song was uh, actually uh, interesting to to me in, um, in the recording of it. This was one of the Nashville session songs. So the producers on it were uh, Larry Chaney and and Diane Davidson. And they wrote out, um, Larry wrote out what's what's Nashville charts for the music. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but it looks like like an arithmetic quiz because (laughs) they do everything in in numbers and sometimes fractions. And I was teasing him. I was like, I was under the impression this album was not to have any math. Um, But I was going through it and I couldn't figure out the, the 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 timing of stuff and and I text him and I said you know this song is is in four four why it, it's not working out whenever I try and play it and count it and he goes the whole song's not in four four Deirdre I'm like what and she he said the verse the first part of the verses are are actually in seven four and I said what um, because I'm a very uh, I don't know, 4-4 kind of gal. I've worked with a, an, an improv, a women's improv group, um, and th- they come up with all sorts of weird time signatures and stuff, and then it gets to me, and I do things in 4-4. And, and so I had accidentally uh, written this uh, part of this song in in a different kind of verse, and I was just so proud of myself. And, and that actually, he, he said it's a, a rhythm that um, I think Peter Gabriel uh, uses a lot, and it is a Celtic um, popular Celtic rhythm that I had picked up from somewhere. So I was just, you know, kind of patting myself on the back for doing something unusual for me, even though I had no idea. But um, I'm really pleased with, with how this, this came out and, and um, you know, said even from the beginning, I, I wanted more of a like a Bodrum type drum sound to what was going on. Um, Billy Contreras did some absolutely wonderful fiddle uh, on this, along with the um, the Dobro work by uh, Wanda Birch, Birchfield, you know, just so just a really fun "Let's Move Forward" tune.
day begins long before the dawn Food's on the table and the coffee's on The kids are dressed and headed off to school They know mama don't play so don't act the fool Keys in hand, her eyes on the prize Always working, shoulder to the GPS by the pale moonlight Six hours and five more to go Miles and minutes, the truckers load The ribbon highway stretches without end Intention go shoulder to the wheel. We have the courage, we have the will to keep moving forward, though it's all uphill. Rocky, the road is long, but our eyes are clear and our hearts are strong. There is nothing we cannot achieve as long as we build shoulder to the wheel, stone by stone, shoulder to the wheel, stone by stone, shoulder to the wheel. to the wheel that is from deirdre mcgullah from the new album endless grace and deirdre is with us today to discuss this album and oh wow i am just so i'm so overjoyed with having some great music like this to play and it's you know as we were saying before there's a lot of different 
styles that kind of creep into your music. Um, and it's been a long time coming since we, we had your last <laughs> album. But but you, you also mentioned that you had two different production teams working on this album. Yes. Did that make it harder to make a cohesive package? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah in, in a word, yes. <laughs> um, and to the extent that I don't think I would ever quite do it this way before. Actually, Playing for Keeps, the album 20 years ago, uh, also had two producers. Um, most of it was done by the, the marvelous Lori Lewis producing, and the other was um, were, were done by Teresa Troll, who mm-hmm. I had worked with for three previous albums that I absolutely adore. But Teresa had moved to New Zealand, <laughs> so she wasn't able to do the entire album. And it was actually Teresa that recommended Lori Lewis. So there were two producers on that, but the difference between that, between Playing for Keeps production and Endless Grace, is that with Playing for Keeps, the engineer was Tom Size, um, the late great Tom Size, um, who had done two other albums with me, and we did everything in his studio. So there was between the two producers, even though they had uh, different, slightly different approaches to the songs, they had Tom as the glue be- between them, and Tom's studio as the sonic continuity between them. With Endless Grace, there were two different cities. Mm-hmm. So in Nashville, it was the, the team of um, Diane Davidson and Larry Cheney. And we were at the studio in, in Nashville. Um, Sun Dog, I think was the name of it. And in California, going back to Berkeley, um, not at Tom's studio and not at Fantasy Studio, where I had worked before. But um, wonderful studio called Bird and Egg with Julie Wolf. So different engineers have different approaches, even as to how they mic an acoustic guitar, how they Mm -hmm. mic the drums, what they emphasize. And there was this, I wouldn't say disconnect when quite when the, when everything was all said and done, I did six songs in Nashville and five uh, in Oakland, but there was definitely a difference. Uh, What we had decided early on was that one team was going to uh, do all the mixes to help bridge that. Um, Julie Wolf uh, out in California wound up doing the overall mix of, uh, of all 11 tracks. And she worked really hard to uh, balance the, the sonic differences that between the two um, she got pretty close and then she left it to um, the masterer for all the tracks, Ken Lee, who really brought it all home and made it work. So it took longer in, in that regard. Um, it was a different kind of work. Um, I think I would only work with two producers again if it was one engineer and <laughs> in the same studio. Um, but I, but I, you know, it all wound up working and, and, you know, it's, um, a testimony to how good and solid each city's tracks were that they could be brought together. Now, since it's been so long since your previous album, 
you know, a lot has changed in engineering. A lot has changed in the way albums are recorded and released. Did you learn anything new that uh, may have influenced the way the album came out? I think, again, the thing I learned new is that I don't think I'll ever do it quite this <laughs> way. <laughs> okay, because, okay, the, the other element that was was really difficult for me and was just hard is that in the mixing stage, the producers and I, you know, so Julie would mix a sound and go, how does this work? Well, she's listening to it on one set of speakers in a specific room. And then I get sent an MP3 that I'm listening to it in my office on my speakers. I mean, I even bought special monitor speakers to kind of help with that, but I'm not in the same room hearing it as she hears it. Mm -hmm. So, and then for me as a non-producer to have to articulate what doesn't or does work for me was really, really difficult. So what I learned is next time I'm going to have to fly to wherever they are in the mixing yeah. um, because I don't hear what they hear. Plus, I, I actually have a hearing deficiency in in my left ear because of a, I have Meniere's disease in, in my left ear. Um, so my hearing, I, I can't always trust what I'm hearing. In fact, there's one thing on one song where um, there's a, a sound that I, you know, I I email Julie, there's this sound that's happening in, you know, like 45 seconds in. Um, and to me, it's a really annoying sound. And she actually narrowed it down um, and sent me an, uh, an audiograph of, you know, what it was. And it was when the snare drum uh, comes in, starts, uh, something's happening on the snare drum. Now, I expected when she identified that, that she would get rid of it. Um, and she didn't. So then I have to say, oh, okay, so my hearing <laughs> is such that it's an annoying sound to me, but it must be fine for the rest <laughs> of the world. Because <laughs> she didn't take it out. Uh -huh. um, and and so it's stuff like that, that not being able to, dis to discuss those things in real time with the same parameters um, that I think is, you know, not necessarily optimal for mm -hmm. me. On the other hand, there were some things that were done, some of the overdubs that were done. Um, the Wanda Birchfield, who does the dobro and the mandolin on some of the Nashville cuts, was never in the studio. She was sent files to her home, and she did them at home and sent the files back. Um, that, to me, is just amazing that you can have these wonderful things uh, elements added in and not be there. That's a great thing about um, life in, in the modern age. The background vocals that Vicki Randall did for um, three of the songs in on the Oakland tracks, which are just killer. Um, Vicki never came into the studio. Vicki did that at her house. And it's all Vicki. You know, it's not three or four different people getting pulling off four part harmony it's vicky in her house pulling it off you know she could have come to the studio but she didn't feel like it <laughs> she had the equipment at home that's amazing yeah 
to me. Um, and you know, and it, I just, uh, I just a couple of days ago, uh, had an interchange with with Vicky about that, and and I said, you are an absolute angel, a choir of angels, as a matter of fact. Um, so there are great things about modern technology. There are some things that um, perhaps it's just us, you know, people yeah. that are used to working old school that um, want some of those ways back. But it's it's pretty amazing what can be done. It certainly is. But, but you know, the idea also comes out through you being a, a touring artist. A lot of times you're performing solo. Um, to, to be able to, to, to bring these songs to an audience, you kind of have to almost reimagine it in some cases well you know definitely i've always in the stu- in the studio allowed uh the producer to do with the song what the song is capable of and that has always meant on my albums that there are going to is going to be at least one or more uh song that i can't pull off mm-hmm. in that exact way live and the balance that I have found in my career is, yes, there are songs that need the studio production if people want to hear it um, that exact way. But there are elements to my live show that people miss in the studio production. And, and then I, a constant you know, request I get from people is, when are you just going to do a guitar and vocal album? Um, because that's, that's all I really need. And, and I'm like... My ear needs more than that for a studio album, and I'm <laughs> probably never going to do that. So there are elements of my live show that aren't on the album, and there are elements of the album that I can't do in the live show. But I think the strengths of each balance it out in um, in in the long run. Sure. You know, so for, for this album, uh, I when we you know you're at some point going to play I I do not walk this path alone I cannot reproduce the wonderful uh, production that's on that with just uh, guitar and vocal but I have found a way of making it um, powerful in its own live way you know well well, there are some certainly some powerful songs on this album and I'd like to play one other one right now Uh, a song called Even Now, which is just stunning. Thank you. Um, how do, uh, what is the history behind this song? Um, that, that song, again, was one of those actually that took over uh, a number of years to evolve. Um, the, the song is about someone having passed and the person left behind still feeling their presence. And... The major finishing, I think, um, events in my life was uh, in the summer of uh, 2018 uh, when I lost my only brother, um, who's seven years older than I. Um, And also a few months prior to that, um, a a dear friend of mine had lost their um, college-age daughter, Hmm. you know, which for any parent um, is devastating. And years before that, and that's when the first verse and chorus of this song was written, um, my son lost his best friend to gun violence. Mm. And 
being with him through that experience is when I wrote the first verse and the chorus because he he had been saying that he still felt his friend with him. But I, I couldn't move any further on that for a couple of years until a friend lost her daughter and I lost my brother. And it finally all came together in, in to, to, to what for me has always been a very powerful song when Julie uh, sent me one of the first mixes because she had added a wonderful violin um, part on it with Alyssa Rose and Viggy Vandal's background vocals. And I, and I just started weeping. Um, and, and I told, I told Julie that, um, my reaction was that if I had died at that moment, my life would have been complete because I had created at least one beautiful thing with that song. There's a stillness in this dusty room that greets me every day on the shelves lie bits of memories I can't quite pack away Think by this Stars would realize Yet somehow I still find Even now Your laughter lingers Even now I can still feel your smile Even now My heart Here's your whisper in the wind We were fearless We were warriors The world was our domain True believers and the dreams that dance before us Right as rain We knew where we belonged The road stretched on and on I blinked can still feel your smile even now my heart hears your whisper in the wind how do I find direction how will I ever preach this pain 
every season swells with wonder that begs to be released and in time even a world of hurt will come to rest in peace out the corner of my eye sometimes I catch a spark of light your shimmer can still feel your smile even now my heart hears your whisper in the song even now from the brand new album from Deirdre McCullough the album Endless Grace and Deirdre is with us today you know uh, Deirdre we were talking earlier uh, you were mentioning about one of the one of your audience members who uh, fans who um, helped donate and, and inspire you to record an album and one of her reasons was because your music is a soundtrack to her life and I, I think when I hear a song like even now I, I, I it makes me rem- remember what is so important about this folk genre we call folk music that it is really a soundtrack I mean we've all most of us have gone through some some losses some heavy losses like that and a song like that brings us comfort it brings us uh, inspiration it brings us uh, a chance to remember but as a songwriter uh, you know, you're dealing with a lot of personal emotions in your music. Is it difficult to write a song like that and then be able to perform it? Does uh, it keep bringing up issues? Uh, not only just this song, but other songs. I, I think so, I think songs go through for a performer, for a songwriter, go through layers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are are some shows where for whatever reason i am more in touch with the origin of the song i kind of felt that actually i I saw bonnie Raitt uh just last week and she was wonderful but i definitely felt that there were some songs and some moments where she went to a different place inside and whether uh, she was remembering if it was a song she wrote why she wrote it or you know as I say song has songs have layers so you find new relevance um, in in the words she went to a different place and I, I could see it I can hear it and I think that's what a performer does I think that's what a good song does is that you start to see um, or feel different elements at different times. Mm-hmm. Uh, a quote that I have um, in a notebook somewhere. Um, 
where she says, if when someone hears my songs, they're thinking about their life and not the specifics of the song in my life, then I've done my job. Mm-hmm. You know, so the fact that you say that, that um, even now and in, in, in my songs cause you to reflect on its meaning in your life, even though the spark of it were some specific things in my life, you think about it as to how it relates to your life. As a songwriter, I've done my job. And you've done an incredible job. Uh, this is just such a magnificent album. And I'm, as a radio host, I'm grateful for you for giving me something to play uh, that is so beautiful. Thank you. And... Check back with me in another 30 years and I'll see <laughs> something. Uh, I'm writing it down in my calendar right now. <laughs> No, I, I hope it's not that long, and I hope you uh, continue to, to to bring us uh, great music. Um, you've got a birthday coming up, and yes, a do. CD uh, release party on the same day in, in Decatur, yes, Georgia. Yes, here here in Atlanta, um, the the legendary place uh, Eddie's Attic, um, where uh, folks like the John Mayer and the Indigo Girls. Um, put Eddie's Attic on the map for sure, if not the other way around. Anyway, I'm doing an album release show on the 26th of June, uh, show and celebration at, at Eddie's Attic in Decatur, Georgia, which is uh, in the Atlanta area. And I'm really happy about that because it's also my birthday. Nice. So it's an album release and birthday party celebration. Um, so far, I only have two specifically album release shows scheduled. The other is in August on the 21st in Berkeley, California, at a place called The Back Room, um, which I've not played before, but um, Julie uh, Wolf especially recommended it as a nice, intimate place. A, a lot of my support, since I lived in the Bay Area for 11 years, um, is comes from out there. So I'm really looking forward to that. And both of those uh, shows are going to be um, album playthrough shows. Uh, which is a concept that I only recently heard of. It seems to be a thing now. <laughs> but um, I will be playing uh, the entire album in sequence, start to finish. So they are both going to be album playthrough shows. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, I hope our audience, because we obviously now with the internet, uh, we're not just local to New York. Although I, right. I do hope you get to New York sometime again soon. You know, I need, I need to figure, I haven't been up to the Northeast yeah. a very, very long time. So I need to get on the phone and start making that happen. <laughs> well, I, I hope our uh, audience will check out your website, uh, which is? DeirdreMcCalla.com. The hard part of that is is spelling my first name correctly. So it's D E I. D-R-E-M-C-C-A-L-L-A dot com. Great. And you'll find your, your link to all of your concerts and uh, music and some great videos as well. Uh, I, I, I got to thank you for being with us today and, and, and share. And thank you for recording this album. But uh, I want to play one more song uh, to, to close out our little visit today. It's the song that ends the album. It's called I Do Not Walk This Path Alone. And I, I love every cut on this album, but this one really got to me. Um, could you uh, tell us that's, that, what that's, inspired us? Well, you know, that, that song is it has been uh, in the making for uh, a number of years. I won't even say how many years. Um, people have probably heard some iteration of it. I performed it actually a lot in 20... 
21 uh, leading up to, or 2020, leading up to the election because I was involved with a lot of online uh, fundraisers. And at that point, I was uh, doing the song uh, Acapella with uh, kind of a more of a, of a, a pseudo Sweet Honey in the Rock vibe and, and beating uh, my guitar for an instrument and had evolved to that version um, over the years. Going into the studio, um, that fell to Julie Wolf uh, to produce, and 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 it's almost it, it, it's comical. That my radio promotion person really wanted to skew the entire album more toward um, a folky, acoustic folky feel, and I do think we we nailed um, the acoustic feel. But there's a lot more drums uh, mm-hmm. on this than she originally hoped that there would be. And when we're working, and when uh, Julie and Vicki Randall were working with this, with me on the track, it just needed to have a, a killer gospel, I call it a gospel country R&B uh, section to it. They, they, Julie just really dug deep inside um, the elements of what I've done with my music and what was there in the song and pulled it out from the inside. And after we'd done the first run through, I just kind of threw my lyric sheets up into the air and I said, okay, my inner folky has left the building. Uh, (laughs) But, um, again, the songs in the studio for me need to be done to their strengths. And the, the feel on this is just awesome to me. Yeah. Vicki Randall's background vo- vocals are awesome. We actually have a video that, that on this that's going to be uh, premiering, I think, in the next uh, week or so. Um, Carrie and Ellen and I are talking about how we're going to do that. That shows the making um, of this, uh, the joy that went into this. Vicki and uh, Julie cheering me on because... This definitely was a, a stretch uh, for me, and and they made it work, and they and we all got us there. And it's the song actually from which the title of the album is is taken. Uh, I was having trouble coming up with a title for the album, and it was Julie Wolf who suggested. She goes, "Why don't you maybe find a lyric line that um, that you can take the title from rather than using the whole title." Of a, of a song for the album. So uh, I spent an evening going through every lyric um, sheet uh, for the album. And in the third or fourth verse of this song is the line lines, there are people I will never see fighting the good fight with me. They soldier on with endless grace so the world can be a better place. Perfect words and a perfect album. Endless Grace, Deirdre McCullough. Deirdre, thank you so much for being with us today. I, uh, thank you for having me, Ron. And we, I, we've got to do this again really soon. Next time you're in New York, we got to get those uh, dates up. Yes, <laughs> I, will, I will work on it. <laughs> All right. Again, thank you for being here today. And uh, let's go out now with I Do Not Walk This Path Alone. Deirdre McCullough. Do not walk this path alone, no matter where I'm bound. 
Different names, spirit guides us all. 